I considered having have you remain standing for me to read chapters 5, 6, and 7, but I thought that might be a little much, especially since it was the 5th, 6th, and 7th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, and there is so much in that book. But as I have been contemplating and thinking about how to enable this congregation and each of us to get a picture and a glimpse of Jesus, who the man fully is, this passage of scripture seemed to leap out to me. I understand it's huge. I understand it's, it's a bulk of material. And obviously, I'm not going to refer to all of it. But I am going to begin to refer to it in the way it began for a curious kind of reason. I think the scripture speaks to us in many different kinds of ways from the approach of study and critical evaluation of the text in a kind of spiritual sense in which it just ministers to our need, whoever we are and whatever we may be needing from God. I recognize that it speaks to us in a way that organizes sometimes our thoughts and our lives, we hope, and in a way that changes our lives in powerful ways as we reflect on what we're reading and learning from the Scripture. But I think also there are a lot of times there's a subtlety to Scripture that we sometimes overlook, even as I think there is a subtlety to the personality of Jesus. A broad picture of a man who was so important and so empowered. A man that we call Jesus and who literally changed the world in which we live, though not all of it yet. We think of that man and we think of the love and the acceptance, the forgiveness that we have at his, at his side. We probably cherish pictures of him in our homes and in our offices and in places we work. For he is the, the savior of us all, the one who rescues us from who, who we have become in this sinful environment in which we live. But you know, those pictures of comfort are ever important to us. And certainly they're important today. They're important today because we're at a, a time as we mark on this earth, as we often do as human beings, events and things happen into our lives that make things different for us, sometimes forever different, sometimes with a power that just will not go away. It's now just a few days Five days, I believe, is the correct number since we heard a year ago of the tragic accident or a troop that was scouting in Canada and I believe it was Michigan, I think it was. Thank you, it's close. It was one of those northern cold places. Beautiful places to see in the summer. When we got that word, I, I, I never shall forget. You get that phone call and you're, you actually you feel breathless. You feel like, wind has been taken out of your sails. You feel like, how can this be? A young scout, a scout leader from our church, Nikki, were killed in a horrific accident. It's hard to believe it's been a year now since that time, but it happened. And as we continue to mourn, because we continue to do so, I, just the other night I was in a restaurant and I, I glanced across the way and there was this Asian woman who was giving a lecture to some people with her. She was really telling them about something in her life. And I looked and I just noticed and then I, and I looked back and I said, that's not Nikki, but it looks like Nikki. And she certainly could have been doing this while she was talking. She was so filled with energy. So we just don't, people don't just pass from our world that we live in and become forgotten. The ways in which they've touched our lives 
have meaning for us. But they also have meaning for us in the way that we relate to God as well. In the greatest and earliest days of that loss, we wondered how would we ever find comfort again. But we did. The pain is not fully gone, but God continues to comfort us as we mourn. We wonder how, how Ricky was going to respond and take care of four children and how things were going to work out for them. But he has done oh so very well. We wondered how the children would be, how they would feel, and how they would respond to God in the face of this tragedy in their young lives that they were trying to figure out how such a thing can happen to us when we are believers and followers of God. And yet this very week, one of the sons is on a, a great experience in scouting at Camp Philmont, an 85 miles of a wilderness journey carrying everything he needs to depend upon his survival in, a, in his backpack along with the other group of guys. Life does go on. And the fact that God comes to us to comfort in our, in our time of mourning is one of the things that Jesus promised us because that's what he promised to the people of his kingdom. You see, these beatitudes are a direct reflection of how we're going to be interacting with God and how God is going to be active not only in the place where God lives but also in the world in which we live. It's often not exactly the way we want God's interaction with us but it is exactly what we need. And sometimes it's hard for us to get those things in line within our own psyche, with our own mind. I mean, look at this list. And I think you'll understand. Just listen to it for a moment. I'm not going to read the whole scripture, but God is going to give the poor in spirit, those who know they need God, the kingdom of God. We're, our sermon series is about that kingdom, right? The crown in the kingdom. It says God is going to comfort those that are mourning. It says that God expects the gentle to inherit the earth. It says that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, a, a relationship with God, will be satisfied. It says that God is merciful. And we are called to be merciful. And when we are merciful, we're going to be blessed by receiving mercy from God. It says that those who are pure in heart are going to see God in their midst. It says that peacemakers are called children of God. It says that even when we're persecuted for righteousness sakes or because of Jesus and his name, that great is our reward in heaven. It says that we are then living the life that Jesus lived. This passage was important to me because as I thought about this reality that I wanted to express, I realized it was a huge challenge. There's just too many scriptures about the man Jesus to say too many different things. But what I was trying to express and what I'm trying to say this morning is I believe that Jesus is not only the God of love and comfort and assurance and salvation, but he is also Jesus the man who had great expectations. You know, some things in your life stick with you in weird ways. And when I was in, I think I was in junior high, we read a book together as a class as part of our literature assignment, and it was called Great Expectations. How many of you read about poor Pip? You still reading about poor Pip? Are they reading about poor Pip in school? Not so much now, huh? That's a shame. 
because poor Pip was a young man who had great expectations for his future and learned to find them to find them as the story goes on. But it's funny that that phrase of living with great expectations has always been a kind of uh, one of my centering points for life. I have great expectations of life. I always have had them. And I've always had great expectations of people. And sometimes people have told me I expect too much from congregations. And I smile and say, okay, I still have great expectations, though. After all these years of doing ministry, I don't give up a great with, of my great expectations for, for the people of God because Jesus has great expectations of me. And Jesus has great expectations of you. I don't think this is the side of Jesus that we think about nearly as much as we do think about the loving, forgiving, graceful Jesus who saves us from our sins. But the reality is that Jesus has great expectations for us. He expects us to mourn, and he expects to comfort us when we do. He also expects us to be merciful. He expects us to, to realize our need for God, to be poor in spirit. And he says that when we're poor in spirit, that we're going to inherit the kingdom of God. He says that we can have a pure heart. He says that we can be peacemakers. He says that even though we're persecuted, it's not a bad thing. Because then we'll know that we're living for him. And you say, well, these great expectations seem a little much. Well, this is the easy part of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the part where he's given us these promises about the hidden view. is He wants to bless us, and he will bless us because we're going to be a certain kind of people with certain kinds of needs. And that's why he's going to bless us. And that also says he expects us to be that kind of person. And I think sometimes in today's church, in the last 30 or 40 years, I'm not for sure how, we, how well we have communicated the high expectations that God has for us, even in the midst of his love and acceptance. They're not antithetical. You don't have to shout at people. You don't have to scream at people. You don't have to frighten them uh, away from hell, but you can love them away because of your great expectations for them. And I think it's a much more powerful way, and I think it was a side of Jesus that he displayed regularly. Even when the woman was brought before him in, in adultery, he didn't shy away from her. You see, he had great expectations for her future that were much more powerful than she had been able to realize so far in her life. And it allowed him to look past the recurrent reality of what was unpleasant or even the, the life that she had been thrown away and to expect for her in response to the mercy that he showed her and the grace he showed her and the love that he showed her that she would become a different person. High expectations sometimes I just don't think get communicated nearly as clearly as they could in the culture in which we live. You see, I don't worry about this culture being kind and gentle for the most part because I find we're, we're pretty gentle and pretty kind. And sometimes we're kind and gentle to a fault. You know, one of the reasons that when people tell me that I, I'm occasionally, I know you've probably heard this before, but occasionally somebody will show up in my office to call me out on something. And sometimes as they show up in my office over these 30 years, they've 
call me out on various kinds of things that they are sure are true. And more than once, I've had to respond in this way after somebody has told me something about myself that I knew wasn't true. And I've simply looked at them and said, that's not true. I never thought what you thought I was thinking. You assumed you knew my mind and your heart and you didn't. And I would never do what you said because my daddy taught me better. And I've always valued what, what my dad said to do. I've always tried to do the right thing. That's what I've been told to do. That's what I was taught to do. I've tried to do that. Am I successful 100% of the time? No. But I learned a lot from being in church, from watching other people live. And I knew that my parents had high expectations for me. You remember the time when you're sitting around in a family conversation? I remember distinctly what it was about. It was about, um, <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and say this. Why not, right? Um, I'll soon be 66, and that means I'm untouchable, right? I have a guaranteed check coming in the mail. <laughs> Keeps me one step short of, sal of, of starvation. But the topic was somebody in the family who had committed the unspeakable act as a young lady and was expecting to have a child. Well, that was shocking enough to hear that as a young guy sitting around as an older teenager. But what was really shocking is what came next. They didn't downgrade the young woman or speak terribly of her, but my mother, in the way only mothers can, with that red hair kind of flaming, turned around to look at her two teenage sons to say, well, I hope that my children would have enough respect for me, if nothing else, to never do such a thing. And I looked over at my brother. We were counting the shoelaces on our shoes and trying not to look in Mama's eyes because we were a little afraid of Mama right then. She did have red hair, and it was pretty seriously red. But just to feel the power of what she expected out of us. She expected us not to give in to temptation. You know how hard it is not to give in to temptation? It's hard, isn't it? She expected us not to do that. And it's going to be years later before I'd realize something that I wish she had said then is the reason we can get to resist temptation is because of the power of God that lives within us, not out of our own strength. And when I look at these things that God's going to do for us here, I see them from a different view. I, God expects me to be merciful, peaceful, gentle, loving. He expects me to be persecuted. Why should I be surprised? He expects me to have a pure heart. It's a powerful set of scriptures that talks about, in a strange way, the transforming power of faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus expects us to be perfect. The culmination of this series of verses occurs in Matthew 5, 48. When Jesus said, you are to be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect in, in heaven. Now, how higher expectation can you have than that? Being perfect is a good biblical word, not a good Webster word in the, in the spiritual sense, but a good word from the text. Jesus has high expectations. Did you ever disappoint your parents and you got that look? Y'all remember the look? You know the look when you've done something that you know you shouldn't have done? And you look over and your mama or your dad is just looking at you like, well, look at you. And you know 
you know that you wished you could have changed what you've already done. You know that they expected more of you. I remember that every six weeks in school, the report cards coming in back in the day when I knew, we each knew what was expected of us. Thank you for my older brother who taught me that. He was expected to come in with A's and B's. He came in once with a C. For the next six weeks, he marked on each day of the calendar an X to it as it happened because he was at home and no dating. He was a junior in high school. And I said to myself, Self, Mom and Daddy are serious about this grade thing. And when your time comes, you better remember that or else you'll be home all your life. And the interesting thing about it was my mom went to the trouble to say, now I know what you might be thinking. And I said, what's that? That you, we're expecting you to bring home B's and, C, B's and A's. And I said, well, I know you're not expecting C's. I got that clear. And she said, yeah, and from you, I'm not expecting B's either. And I went, is that, is that fair? I wanted to ask her, is that fair? But see, it really was fair. School was hard for my brother. He started at a young age of six. School was never hard for me. If I made a C, I, I worked hard to get it. I did make one finally. I know this is going to shock you. No, I take it back. It wasn't a C. It was a B. It was my first B. I was in junior high, and it was in conduct. <laughs> what do you say, right? That was my first B. I did make one C finally in high school with a particular teacher that I was really fond of, a chemist teacher, and it was open rebellion. I didn't even want to. I didn't want to see. I would have preferred to make an F, but that might have had consequences I couldn't live with. You see, the difference between having high expectations and being gracious and loving and gentle and caring about it is high expectations should and are meant to lift us higher than we could ever go ourselves, especially when they come from Jesus. Jesus doesn't have high expectations of us to turn us into guilt-ridden children, but rather to let us know what is possible for us. We can do much more than we think we can. And that includes our own individual battles with sin. We can live more victorious, victoriously than we think we can because of the grace of God that lives within us. We can make a greater difference in the world than we think we can. But a lot of times we don't try to live up to the expectations that we know Jesus has for us. What did he say in verses 13 through 16? In the fifth chapter of Matthew, he let his expectations be known here in a different way. He said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. In other words, I expect you to be salty. And then he said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus expects us to be what preserves the world. Jesus expects us to be the light of the world. 
And we love to hide under our bushel basket. We do, don't we? Christians, their favorite word is, well, I just can't do that. That's for somebody else. Or that's the preacher's job. Or that's the Sunday school teacher's job. We can't really be a witness where people can see Christ. I, I, I'm, a, I'm too big a sinner for that. Well, if you are today, right now, this moment, a lot larger sinner than you want to be, and not a good light for Christ, then I have a simple message for you from Jesus. Stop it. Stop it. Don't live down to the level of the people around you, but rather live up to the level of Jesus. Be encouraged that he knows you can be better than you have been. And I don't really care where you've been to this point. You say, well, actually, I'm sitting in the A-plus row. I'm, I'm a good Christian. Good. I have news for you. Be better. And you say, what do you want, blood? Yes. It's kind of like the playground. You know, we're doing this little financial campaign for the playground. Okay. We know we have some money and reserve funds we're going to use. And we figured out a way that we should build a playground. Yeah, it's going to cost $160,000, but we can still do that. We figured out a way to do it. But we thought we ought to give people the opportunity to participate. Since that time, two air conditioners have completely blown up. And another one also that could use that reserve money to be spent on them. But like, we got a lot of that money co committed to that playground because it was necessary. It's not, just a, it's not just something fun. It's necessary for the school as well as for us. It's long overdue. So people get that word and they want to glorify God. And what do they do? I don't know. What have you done? Have you filled out one of those little cards that they pass you out for three weeks in a row? Or is yours lost in the car as you drive away? Have you thought and prayed about what you could do to help make that playground a success and help the church? I don't know. I'm still praying about it. I've still got the decision to make and finish and turn it in. But it's time to turn it in. It's time for us to know where we are as we go on farther. Because this is not out of the realm of our possibility to build that playground and to repair the air conditioners that are broken down. Here's the only problem. Trevor, where are you out there? Are you inside here? I saw you the other day. You are. He said, oh, my gosh, he's going to call me out and worship now. How many air conditioners are on top of the school building? Do you know? How many units? Nine big units over there and about 25 or 30 over here? 27 over here. You know what? All of those nine over there are the same age. We've replaced two of the nine and repaired another majorly. The 27 ones over here are, are much better because they're one year younger. Well, we don't have to worry about them all going out, right? They'll just run forever. Maybe not. You say, what difference does that make? Because we think we can't fix it. We think we don't have enough gifts to give. But do we? I thought about an experiment I've never done yet. I've never done this before. I'm sorry Brian's not here this Sunday. He would really enjoy this message, but he's on vacation. Actually, he enjoyed this part of this message. I thought about having everybody turn in their income tax statement. I thought, what a reading journal that would make. 
And then we can ask ourselves, what does Jesus expect of us? Because here's what happened. The other day I heard about a young, from a young couple on Wednesday that are going to Indonesia to minister into a place incredibly poor where their personal needs are taken care of in the river right by where they're washing their feet. Not surprisingly so, the highest mortality rate is in children five and under. It, it's deplorable conditions, mostly Muslim. And they are going there as a, young, as a young couple to their first place to be a missionary. And they need support. You know, even in Indonesia, somebody has to pay the rent. You have to buy food. You have to take language classes. And I thought, wow, how are we going to find another place in our missions budget for that couple? And then I heard about Liz needing some more money for what the ministry she's doing in the Philippines. And I thought, how are we going to find more money so that Liz is able to continue doing her ministry? You know the first thing I thought is? I, I thought of the budget. We've already spent the budget. But you know what the second thing I thought about is? <laughs> We're the wealthiest blessing people around. How much is really five or $600 a month more we need from this congregation? How much is that really? Would it change your life? Some of you made the rem mistake of remembering your w your form you filed last year for income tax and you thought well I could really pay for one of those myself please be my guest Jesus expects it of you he expects it of you because he knows you can do it and together we will we will find a way to do those things if there's not salt and light for the earth to see how will God be glorified how will Jesus be made known he's made known through Christians living up to the high expectations. We don't want to be just as good as the people down the street. We want to be better than they are. In fact, when they act out poorly, what do we want to do? You continue to read in the story about the Sermon on the Mount, we want to turn the other cheek. Our first response, right? When somebody does us wrong, we turn the other cheek. what it says in this, this, this chapter as you continue to read it. Our personal relationships. If you are at odds with somebody, before you come down to give your gift at the altar, go and get right with them. That's how important relationships are to Jesus. And that's the high expectation he has for ours. He has high expectations for marriage. He has high expectations for helping the poor. He has high expectations for this whole list of things in these three chapters that he just goes on and on. Some of them amaze me. They leave me speechless. And then when I think about that, that's really what Jesus expects of me. It sends me to him. On my knees to ask him to continue the work of changing the way I think and the way I live. He said, make treasures for yourselves in heaven. Not on earth. All in these three little chapters. He says, you know, you really can't please the material desires of this world and please God too. One is going to be your master. Who is it going to be? That's rather straightforward. But Jesus was able to say those kind of things. He said our righteousness has to, to surpass that of the Pharisees. And in this case, what he's talking about there is not a... Uh, 
a righteousness of obeying laws on the outside, but he's talking about rather a transformation that happens to our hearts and our minds. It's one thing to obey because you have to and you can make yourself do it. But what's really the height of Christianity, what the real witness comes from, and the expectation that Jesus has for all of us is not to see us beating ourselves up, trying to outwardly be righteous, but rather for our hearts to be mended and broken and be changed from the inside out. Then you don't have to be told what to do. You don't have to make yourself do what you think is right. You actually want to do it. And this is not something that ever gets done. It's a continual work. It's part of my struggle right now. You've heard me mention, I, I struggle about when to retire. So one of the young men I know, was he said, well, when are you going to retire? And I said, I don't know yet. I can't decide. And he, I said, there's lots of things bearing down on it. He said, but you're not really ever going to retire, right? I thought, well, you're a nosy little cuss, you know. You're 40 years old now almost, but you're getting awful personal here. And I said, well, well as you, now that you mention it, no, I don't ever intend to fully retire. But I know there will come a time when I'm not fully useful. You know, the, the battery will have been burned down enough that I, I can't keep doing the hours I, the senior pastor of a congregation needs to do. I won't be as effective. But he's right. I had this thing inside me that I had since the very beginning. How would I ever retire from doing what God called me to do? And the answer is I won't. I'll just stop getting paid for it <laughs> at some point. You can't stop doing your calling regardless of how old that you are. Now, then I come to that awful thing of trying to wind up this sermon about the high expectations Jesus has. I, mean, I could stay here for weeks talking about the high expectations Jesus has for us. But I want just to remind you that he had the same high expectations for himself. He expected to do the Father's will. He expected it with his last breath. And because he expected it, he knew the Father expected it of him, he was able to do it, even as he died on that cross. And he called us to take up our cross and to follow him. He didn't call us to an easy life. He called us to a faithful life. Sometimes, do you ever find yourself wondering what you could do if you had all the money you hear about on TV? If I could jump 12 foot high and never miss a shot, on the basketball court, think how much money I'd have. Think how much good I could do with $20 million a year. And then comes the nagging thought. If you had $20 million a year, how would you live? How large would your house be? How many cars would you drive? How much money would you give to important people around you, your family? How much money would you give for the work of the kingdom? Because you had so much more than you could ever really need to have. It's a question not just for the filthy rich, but it's a question for us all. Money tends to grab us and pull us down away from our work in the kingdom. I have a theory, Nick, Cindy, Troy, to the rest of the people on staff, Churches are good at keeping us humble by what they pay us, right? We often think that. And yet I know many people in churches who make a lot less than the people in the church make. I know 
many people, not, not by first name basis, but who I see on videos and TV commercials who are living without almost anything. And some of them are just lost. Some of them are Christians who've heard that God loves them. And they've heard that America's filled with Christians. They're waiting to meet one who will help deliver them from a life that's very lost. And I ask myself the, the last question of the sermon. What does it take? How can I be this kind of person that's described in chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew? How can I be that selfless? How can I be that humble? How can I be that pure? How can I meet the expectations that Jesus has of me? Try harder? Work harder? Give more? Do more? Or become more? There's lots of places to start. But the reality is, the real reality is, and Jesus knew it, the only way that we'll ever live into his high expectations for us is that we have to show the appropriate amount of thanks for what we've been given by God. That is hard to do. You say, why is it so hard to do? Because without Jesus, you're going to die and rot on a hill and be dead forever. What do you return for the gift of life? What can you give to somehow say, thank you, God, for all that you've done for me? Thank you for birthing me in the United States. Thank you for birthing me in Texas, right? Or let me get here as fast as I could. Thank you for my children. Thank you for my family. Thank you for my teachers. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all you've given me. And Jesus is still looking at me, waiting for me to say, thank you, Jesus, for being my Savior every day and every moment. Thank you for calling me to be better than I think I can be. Thank you for life that has no end. that I am, with all that I can become, with all that I can be, with all that I can help, with all that I can share. The least gift I can give is you. The most gift I can give is me. And when I do so, then the kingdom of God will be my home while I'm here on earth and when I go to heaven. And the reign of God will be the sweet music in my ears. When I mourn, it will be the powerful, comforting presence of Jesus himself. When I struggle for righteousness, it will be Jesus in me again that satisfies my yearning for oneness with God. Only Jesus. And only my life. That's the only 
Gracious God, it is hard down here on this earth to be a Christian. It's hard not to be self-centered and self-willed. It's hard to turn ourselves over to you. It's hard for us to be like you. And yet, you expect us to be on that journey. You expect us to be living into the very light of God that he shines abroad in our lives. It's different for every one of us. And in some ways, it's the same for every one of us. You ask us for ourselves. Whosoever shall lose his life shall save it, you said. Whosoever loves me more than these, even family, these are my children of God. Father, here we are. Use us as a hand of God in the places we live in order that people might see Jesus. For that is our prayer as we close our service together. If there's one here, Lord, who is ready to take that leap of faith, let them take it today. If they've never made it before, let them trust God and the powerful name of Jesus to guide them in the days to come. As we stand and sing, Lord, we praise your name. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's rise and sing.